Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Stephanie, how are you doing? Doing great. Everyone is back on campus. It's a completely different atmosphere than last year. I hope people are still being safe and prudent, but it's nice to see that kind of dynamism on campus. Are things uh, picking up on your end too, Steve? I guess classes start on Thursday? Classes start Thursday. Orientation is tomorrow, and I will not be at either of these things because we're staying online for a lot of the stuff that we're doing. Uh, so I have no idea what the, what life has returned to Carleton campus at this point in time. We will be getting back into a different battle rhythm with classes uh, once again. So I'll, I'll be doing it from home, but I'm now scrambling to finish my class prep and I'm getting students already noticing the mistakes I've made in the syllabi. So I'm revising my syllabi, make sure I clean things up. And of course, you've got your set plan in your syllabus, but do you also make room for discussion around, let's say there's the 9-11 commemoration coming up, mm. there are the elections. How much time are you dedicating for those discussions with your students? Well, since I mostly teach master's seminars these days, what we can talk about in any seminar can vary. So if there's something that comes up, we, we can talk about it if it's relevant. Last spring when I was teaching civil military relations, I was constantly injecting stuff from around the world. I mean, it was just a coup in Guyana. So if I was teaching civil military now, we'd be talking about it on, on Thursday. So it depends on the topic. I'm teaching U.S. foreign policy this semester, so I'll, I'll definitely be linking whatever is going on in, in the U.S. foreign policy, defense policy scene to what we're discussing in class. You know, each week has a different focus, so I'll try to keep it, you know, on the stuff that's rele relevant for that focus, but it really depends. But yeah, I think this year with the classes starting right around the anniversary, the 20th anniversary, 9-11, that will come into some of my class. You're not teaching this fall, so you get to not have to think about this though. Well, I think we'll all be thinking about uh, the implications of 9-11 two decades after, and especially with the recent Afghanistan evacuations that you were following closely, there's certainly a lot to ponder in terms of lessons learned. And I understand the CDSN is hosting a few events around that uh, anniversary date. That's right. On Thursday, uh, the CDSN and CSID, the Carlton Research Center is hosting the legacy of 9-11, reflecting on Canada's responses to terrorism at 1.30. Uh, again, this is on Thursday the 9th. We have Tabasso Matsir, the Director of Policy and Research for the Asia Foundation in Afghanistan. We have Navid Aziz, who's an Amman and, and Director of Religious and Social Services for the Islamic Information Society of Calgary. Kerry Buck, somebody you've interacted with, who's a former Canadian ambassador to NATO, and Sabine Noke, uh, who's a 
a former Canadian ambassador as well. And the idea of this panel is to, it's not to say, think so much about what happened that day, but think about the reactions that Canada has uh, for the past 20 years, both in its domestic operations and its foreign policies, and think about what, what went well, what we did right, what we did wrong, what we can learn from it. And then we're partnering with CGI for an event on Friday at 11 a.m. Again, these times are Eastern time zone, where David Perry, Dick Fadden, Andrea Sharon, and Eugene Lang will be thinking about, again, what can we learn? What did we do? What can we do better? And the CDSN is also going to put out a video. We've interviewed both policymakers from uh, that time frame, such as Bart Eggleton and General Ration Hanau and others from that time frame, as well as analysts from the present day to think about that day, what they what they remember and what they lived through and what they learned from that. And so I guess the question I want to ask you, Stephanie, is you are just a young, naive mm-hmm. undergraduate walking around McGill. What did you remember from that day? Hmm. Yeah, I was a, an undergrad at McGill and 9-11 happened on a day when I didn't have any classes. And I remember the phone waking me up that morning, actually. And uh, it was CBC. And they were asking me if I'd heard from my mother that morning. And my mother happened to be on assignment as a television producer in New York City. So right away, I asked why they were calling me to ask that question. And they just told me to watch television, open the TV. And uh, that's what I did. And then I spent the entire day by my phone uh, waiting for my mother's the alarm bells were sounding off. And uh, she eventually did call in the evening and let me know she was safe. And then her role there, she was covering another story, but her role immediately went from from her initial assignment to cover 9-11 and getting some of that footage in. So it was a very stressful day. Uh, It was like a very, very, uh, you know, personal source of stress. But of course, realizing very quickly after the broader implications of that day for foreign policy, international politics, and I was already interested in those topics back then. And we were talking a bit earlier, uh, Steve, about how you make room in your classes, in your grad classes, to talk about these events. And I was a little surprised and, and taken aback, because of course, in the days that followed, it was it was mentioned, it seemed like everyone was in a bit of a state of shock. And there are a lot of American students. Also, you you can see it was having an impact on their personal lives as well. Fellow students were, you know, leaving the classroom because they were upset when, when the topic was raised. So it was it was a tricky balance because as political scientists, you want to analyze the events, but it was still very raw for many people. I think both students and, and faculty members alike. So talking about it was was difficult. So I think Mostly after that initial week, we reverted back to what was on the syllabus, wow. even though we had classes like Canadian foreign policy. I remember another class I was taking at the time, crisis, conflict and war. We stuck to the script rather than you know spend much time analyzing the implications of 9-11. And I suppose for me, 2001 was a big shock, but I think more memorable still in terms of implications for foreign and defense policy was that larger time frame from 2001 to 2003, which was really nonstop around setting this, the foundations of the global war expansion of what that covered with the invasion of Iraq by the United States and, and coalition partners in 2003. So I think that really much cemented uh, my interest for international politics, really 
confirmed my plans to go to grad school instead of law school and ultimately determined the topic of my PhD dissertation as well because my dissertation focused on how U.S. allies responded to 9-11. So I I guess the the impact in hindsight were pretty significant. And the other thing I'll say just as as an undergraduate student and and a person in her early 20s at the time is shifting perceptions with regards to the Canadian Armed Forces. I had always had that image of Canadian soldiers being sent on peacekeeping missions. And and that was very much seared in, in my brain when it came to how I thought about the Canadian Armed Forces. And then when you start seeing some of your your friends, people your age going off to war, and it certainly wasn't peacekeeping, especially not in those early months, you start having a completely different understanding of you know, what a Canadian soldier is asked to do. And so there was a profound Canadian foreign policy shift, but also in terms of what we were asking our military oh. to do, it's something that we hadn't necessarily thought was possible even a couple of years earlier. So it was, um, yeah, it was through that that lens that I was uh, analyzing these events. At first, a very personal experience with uh, the immediate events of 9-11 and then how it uh, really transformed my professional trajectory. And I guess you were a professor at the time. You were seconded at the Pentagon for, for that year, correct? And, yep. and I think that you've uh, had the opportunity to talk about what it was like for you on that day, but how did it transform your worldview as a professor? Did it change at all mm-hmm. how you approach teaching or how maybe your, your, your theoretical or even political convictions. What did it change for you in your role as a professor? Oh, that's a really good question. I think in terms of what I teach and what I research, that year's experience of working in the Pentagon greatly changed what I was thinking about doing. My first 10, 15 years of my career was focused on the international relations back in conflict. And then thanks to that year in the Pentagon, I, I switched topics that originally focused on alliance politics because I was watching from inside the Pentagon how the alliance was reacting to the twin event, you know, the, the event of 9-11 that I was on the Bosnia desk of the strategic planning and policy directorate. And in my first week, the Balkans were the most important thing in American foreign policy. And and the team I was with had just spent the summer having, if not weekly, then bi-weekly principal meetings where you have the national security advisor and the secretary of defense, the secretary of state, and all the other top level officials meeting to talk about various Balkan issues. And that required the folks in the joint staff to be as they would say, spun up, working really hard to put together briefing books and, and briefing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to be prepared for those meetings. And then those meetings stopped after 9-11. I was at the next briefing of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on a Balkan issue, which was April of 2002. And he said, when was the last time we did one of these things? And we said, well, it was before 9-11, sir. And he said, well, you guys are doing pretty well without us. And that sort of represents how the Balkans became a secondary and then tertiary issue for American foreign policy. But before 9-11, it was the, it was the show. So it helped to uh, teach me sort of how priorities can change in, in, a, in a heartbeat, really, in a day. And then while I was in that in the building for the rest of that year, I, I, I was hearing enough stuff and seeing enough intelligence that I knew that Iraq was on the horizon. And by the time I left the Pentagon, I knew that Iraq was, you know, the war with Iraq was inevitable. Summer of 2002, it was, it was, it was a done deal. It was just a matter of time. So that, that helped change my understanding of foreign policy. I now started to emphasize the role of individuals more because you can't really understand what was going on in 2001, 2002, 2003 without thinking about Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld. And it was their personalities. It wasn't their structural positions. It wasn't uh, the structure of international relations. It wasn't these metaphors that we talk about. It was about personalities and individual inclinations. And all of our training in graduate school and before that focused on this other stuff. And so 
in my teaching, I ended up focusing a bit more uh, on this. And in my research, that turned out to be the case. In the NATO book I wrote with David Arswald, one of the key things we realized is, is that the policies that we ended up shaping the missions in Afghanistan and in other multilateral operations, in some situations, there's a, a greater role for personality, such as in presidential systems or in parliamentary systems, when there's not coalition government, when, when there's not a minority government. But when there's a majority government, the prime minister can do what, what, he, what he or she wants. And so then we have to take seriously personality. So I think that's one of the big take-home lessons from, from that time frame. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's affected my work and my teaching ever since then. So that's sort of the take home. Since you're not going to be on the video that we taped because mm-hmm. you were off your family and deservedly so over the course of the time we were taking these things, what do you think of as being sort of the lessons of the past 20 years? What, what's sort of the take home lesson from your observations of Canadian foreign policy of NATO policy? I mean, obviously the aftermath of Afghanistan collapsing, but that's one part of the story, but that's not the entire story. But as you've watched things over the past 20 years, are the things that that we should, you know, reactions that were appropriate or reactions that Canada made that we we should rethink in in face of future terrorist threats or future foreign policy dilemmas? Yeah, that's a a very good question. And I think, you know, at at the outset, the past two decades have really brought home to me this idea that Canada makes a lot of its foreign policy based on its alliance relationships. And I'm not always sure this is the right way to go necessarily, because when you look at the the political outcome of this from an alliance standpoint, even after do, two decades of working closely together, there's still quite a bit of distrust in how the the mission ultimately ended. I think the allies were left in the dark for a lot of the details as, as they were being worked out. And that I think is true for both the Trump administration and the Biden administration. On the military front in terms of alliance relationships, I think the assessment is, is more positive. So two decades of working together as a military alliance, for instance, you asked the question about NATO, definitely improves interoperability and uh, improves the nature of those military to military relationships. However, you know, what has this brought Afghanistan ultimately in terms of long lasting, stable outcomes for the country? And I think that the, the ultimately get to see in the next few months, whether some of those gains can be consolidated, but that is still very, very unclear. And so as we move on from Afghanistan, operationally speaking, I think it's really important to ask broader questions about what can we hope from training and capacity building efforts, because those military activities are increasingly popular. They're politically palatable. They're seen as a constructive way of engaging with other countries, but what do they really deliver ultimately in terms of longer term success metrics? And I I think it's it's really important to grapple with with that question uh, as these types of activities are carried out elsewhere, certainly not on the same scale as we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq, but in pretty much every region of the world. And Canada certainly is part of many of those training and capacity building activities continuing to be popular in the United States. So that's what I would hope we focus on in this moment, you know, raising that broader question of some of the longer term political and military ramifications from an allied perspective. I really hope we keep the focus, however, on the evacuation of citizens and Afghan refugees, because I think that is a uh, sort of a critical uh, area of focus right now and and making sure that, you know, what happens to 
the people who have not been evacuated remains a, a question that's top of mind, but also what happens to the refugees who have left the country, both in terms of their resettlement here, but also a lot of people are left in limbo in other countries waiting for their paperwork to be processed and are uh, in very precarious conditions, either in the camps or, or in third countries. There's an immediate focus that needs to remain, of course, on uh, the, the consequences of, of the withdrawal uh, that ended uh, late last month. Well, I think the core lesson I've learned over the past 20 years is damn the world's complex, because I think the lessons of Afghanistan and Iraq are not to heavily intervene. Uh, the lesson of Libya is not to intervene sort of halfway. And then the lesson of Syria is that if you don't intervene, bad things can happen anyway. And so it's it's really quite humbling to try to figure out how to deal with these situations where it, it's just really, really hard to get to a successful outcome. And the mantra of the, for me for the past month for explaining what has happened in Afghanistan is it's really not so hard to destroy things, but it's incredibly hard to build things, particularly governance. And so if, if that alliance needs to break things, you know, the alliance should come in and break things, but it's going to have to be much more careful in the future about what it tries to build and where it tries to build it. I did see somebody tweet about how this the, this is the end of out of area operations for Afghan for the NATO for the foreseeable future, and I think that's largely true, except for the capacity building stuff that you mentioned. But I do think that one of the lessons of the capacity building stuff of training other militaries to do the job is that that's only training other militaries to be better militaries. That's not training other countries to manage their political systems well, so that way they don't generate the refugees that drive NATO countries uh, in Europe crazy. Speaking of being driven crazy, let's move to the election here. Have you been fascinated by the endless discussions of foreign policy in this uh, <laughs> particular election? Yeah, there's not much in terms of a foreign policy discussion. However, I did watch the, the French debate and uh, there are two issues, of course, that uh, we'd be interested about when it comes to security and defense that were raised. First one doesn't have necessarily broader foreign policy and the issue of uh, sexual misconduct within the Canadian Armed Forces. And the second issue that was raised was the uh, Afghanistan evacuation. So those those were two other topics uh -huh. that we have uh, broader ramifications for our network, but it was a very, very short discussion. And so I don't know if we can expect more from the English language debates that are this week, but this is not really an election that's about foreign policy. It's about COVID-19. It's about the economy and it's about whether or not we should have had an election in the first place. <laughs> And it's about gun control. Yeah, that too. That, that issue too. has sort of taken over the entire discussion the past week. But the thing is that some of the core issues that we face are international, whether it's COVID or climate change. And and the, the discussion thus far about those issues has been so much on just the Canadian side of things, on just the domestic side mm -hmm. of things, that there's been very little discussion of, of of foreign policy of any kind, even these things that are inherently international. Climate change cannot be controlled by the Canadians. And so what can Canada do to facilitate international cooperation around that issue? I've only seen brief glimmers of references to international trade issues, given that the United States-Canadian trade relationship was quite problematic under Trump and has only gotten slightly better under, under Biden. But this campaign has been very narrowly focused. And it's, it's really interesting to see what the issues are that, that, that have gotten hot. And it's not the ones that, that are sort of playing our, our sandboxes. The, I think the big thing is for the election is that the liberals' victory is, is in doubt. Obviously, you don't call an election unless you think you're going to win. And now the polls have got the conservatives within a within a possibility of, of gaining enough seats to form a minority government. So for our, our part of the world, our, our interest is, I guess, what would you see as being a different conservative 
foreign policy team and set of policies. Speculate all you want, because the next time we talk, we'll know what the answer is in terms of who's the, who won the election. I don't think that we can expect a, a huge difference, honestly, whether it's the, the, the liberals or the conservatives, because uh, ultimately Canadian foreign policy is shaped a lot by international events. It's shaped by our allies and our adversaries. And Canada always seems to adapt as best it can, but there are no huge foreign policy differences when you think back in you know, the last two decades. You can't see some really obvious foreign policy shifts between the Conservatives and, and the Liberals. So I, I wouldn't expect uh, huge changes, but certainly, you know, when you compare the platforms, there, there are noticeable points of nuances there that we can uh, analyze next time we meet after the election, depending on who wins or who's able to form a government. What do you think? All right, do you, you, you think I'm uh, playing down things or is there more continuity than change in Canadian foreign policy? I think there's, in, in most areas, there's more continuity than change. I think you're right on that. The thing that I always point to when I think about the conservative defense platform when that whenever it comes up is how are they going to pay for it? Because I don't really ask the liberals that question because liberals don't care about deficit. But if the conservatives want to cut the deficit, then how are they going to do anything that they promise in the defense platform? Because if they want to build submarines and they're talking about building submarines, if they want to do other things, all that's going to be expensive. So what are they going to cut? In the 2015 election, I, I wrote a piece where I was telling the conservative, the folks who cared about the military, that if they, they want more money spent in the military, I don't know what they're going to do because they can't really vote for the conservatives because Harper at the time was, you know, pushing for budget, you know, zero deficits. And the only way to do that is, is to not spend money in the Canadian military. It's the biggest non-discretionary item. And, and it turns out the liberals come to power and they're willing to spend oodles of money. They don't, again, care about deficits. So this time around, O'Toole's not really talking as much about deficit reduction, but he said we would grow our way out of it. But if we can only grow our way out of it if we stop spending as much money. So again, where the cut. But on foreign policy... You know, there, there's been some efforts to discuss about how the, the, the conservatives would be tougher in China. So I think it'd be a matter of degree, but there's only so much we can do with China. We don't really have a lot of leverage, but it might be a more hostile relationship with China if, if they were to follow through on it. I think the, the fundamental challenge would be for a no tool government is that his constituency, his party is so split on so many issues that it'd be very hard for him. So his dance this past week on gun control was, was one of those. But climate change, I think that would be a foreign policy issue that, that O'Toole would be struggling with because mm -hmm. his own party is very divided on what to do about climate change. So I think a conservative government would be really interesting to watch to see how O'Toole tries to straddle uh, the divide in his party. And so you may find them having as hard a time making decisions and delivering as the liberals often tend to do. We'll see, I, uh, you know, as, as, I, as you said, we'll, we'll know in two weeks who wins or who loses less, <laughs> but we shall see. Yeah, well, I look forward to rehashing this with you. And do you have any special plans on, on election night, I suppose? Election night is, is, that's a Monday. And I'm trying to remember if I teach on Monday nights or Tuesday nights. I think I teach on Monday nights this semester. So I'll be in class while the election returns are coming in for the PhD seminar. But of course, since it's entirely online, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to watch Twitter to see what's going on and see mm -hmm. what the outcome is if we know early enough in the evening. Are you going to go to an election watching party? I don't think so. I'm not doing much partying these days. <laughs> I'm mostly, I'm still very much sticking close to, to home, except for the odd uh, patio outing. But yeah, unfortunately, uh, nothing planned on this front. I'll just be watching with my family. And I look forward to reconnecting with you uh, shortly after that, the, the next day as it turns out. So before you go, Stephanie, I just want to let you and our audience know that we're going to have Donna DuPont, who's the founder and chief strategist in foresight and design for Purple Compass. She was one of our capstone speakers last winter, and she's going to talk about 
program design and strategic planning and foresight. Uh, it's a really interesting conversation because one of the Minds Networks is focused on design, and I had no idea what that meant. I thought it might mean different camouflage. But it's really about thinking really outside the box about the challenges ahead and how to design the military to meet those challenges. So that's our conversation that we're going to have after you and I say goodbye. It's a great topic. I'm glad that it's our feature interview today. And uh, best of luck with the first week of class. Steve and I look forward to reconnecting with you soon. All right. Uh, I'll see you two weeks when we know what the outcome of the election is, Steph. Today we're with Donna DuPont of Purple Compass. She was a Capstone Laureate at the 2021 CDSM Capstone Seminar. Welcome to the uh, podcast, Donna. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I'm a foresight and design strategist. That's an unusual title for uh, many people may not have heard of that, but I work with different types of methods to really expand perspectives, to open up possibility for change and transformation. Okay. And so you're part of this larger movement. You're part of a larger network dealing with design. And when I think of design in the military, I think of, you know, are they changing the camouflage colors? Uh, and so obviously that's not it. So can, can you tell us a little bit what design means? Well, design is a very broad term. I mean, it could mean designing prototypes and actual products. So you're not wrong with the camouflage. And that's actually a type of design called biomimicry, where it's taking inspiration from nature and you're camouflaging, right? So, so that is a form of design. But the work that I do is more around design of stretching our cognitive, our mental model and our mindsets about, you know, the world around us, understanding the world and understanding change and what's shifting in the environment. And so it's about understanding our perspective and maybe where we're kind of limited with that and then expanding that perspective in different ways. So it could mean understanding it from a human dimension, using empathy. So that human centered perspective of how things feel or how people are impacted by certain situations that that could be helpful for creating solutions could be from a systems perspective of understanding some of the complexities and interconnections in a very dynamic complex system and capturing new insights it could be looking at trends and emerging issues and weak signals of change and what that could mean moving into the future so there's different you know different ways of working with design where it shifts our thinking and our perspective and gives us insight into not only today, but what we could be, you know, experiencing, um, you know, moving into the future. And so you spoke about how people do design in general. What is your specific focus in this area? So I do a fair bit of work in uh, disaster risk management. So mm -hmm. looking at kind of uh, the trends, emerging issues, signals of change, things like that, and scenario creation. So do a lot of those type of work. So scenario creation is very different in futures than say planning scenarios. Usually futures scenarios are all about challenging our assumptions, right? So using information, but challenging our assumptions and allowing an opportunity to explore that future, to understand, you know, how would you operate in that environment? So it's really challenging our understanding of the future operating environment. And what would you do differently? 
how would you operate? What would you let go of? Where would you want to invest? What new capabilities? What skills do you need to be resilient to be able to move successfully through that world? So it challenges your thinking. So I do a fair bit of work in that space. I also work a lot in sustainability too, right? So how do you build a system or how do you design towards sustainability? And so that's about understanding the system, right? And the more you understand the system, and you're able to kind of diagnose where that shift is happening, then you can start to identify opportunities to create, to slow down certain areas of turbulence and to start to invest in, in new ideas to create stability moving into the future. So, so that's the areas that I focus on. And were you two, three years ago when you were doing this kind of work, were you building into your future scenarios, pandemics? Well, I've worked as a pandemic planner, <laughs> you know, um, when I worked for the Ministry of Health as an emergency management consultant. So a lot of the scenarios done um, then, you know, in emergency management were were more probable, you know, mm -hmm. probable scenarios, right? Um, not necessarily getting into, you know, what could be plausible. So expanding a little bit more with challenging assumptions or, 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 you know, possible, right? So really going out there and, and thinking about these wild cards. Most of my work, though, in futures has been very much tied to military type mm -hmm. projects, right? Because the military... Um, specifically Canadian Forces College, Canadian Armed Forces, is really trying to bring in these new skill sets, right, to help with a very shifting environment that we live in today. To answer your question around pandemics, I haven't done specific future scenarios regarding pandemics, but I did do some work last year, a collaboration called Future Cell, and it was looking at, this was early in the pandemic, mm -hmm. where it was looking at, say, converging disasters so and hazards so a pandemic plus wildfire season and all the evacuations and all of the considerations to ensure force protection you know and resources and safety and so we did a series of different products around the convergence of the two using design methodology so we used a futures wheel to help understand the direct and indirect consequences. We did a scenario and we had some, you know, questions for practitioners because we actually designed it to be used at a planning table, emergency management planning table in real time to provoke and to stimulate dialogue. And so it was really met with a lot of uh, positive feedback from the broader community because they were able to use these tools to help with some of their conversations. So that's how I've kind of contributed most recently on the pandemic side. But as you can see, right, the pandemic is, it's not a black swan event. It's its a very complex, turbulent type of scenario we're in. So there's a lot of interdependency. So you need to understand systems. You need to understand when you push control for one part of the system, it might you know, elevate other potential emerging issues in the system. So you need to understand those patterns, you need to anticipate that, and you need to have some sort of approach of how you're going to manage those other cascading issues, right? So that's part of being able to understand a complex system, how mm -hmm. to work with a complex system in real time, and understanding feedback. Right. So, you know, when when things are not necessarily going how you expected, you're going to get feedback from the system and being able to take that insight and use it in, in a way that helps to evolve your strategy of how you approach it. 
um, from a different angle. When you presented the capstone, what were you trying to convey? So um, during the capstone presentation, it was just an overview of my research that I've mm -hmm. done and recognizing that a paradigm analysis is it's a lot of, you know, information to to absorb. And so really what I was trying to communicate in a nutshell is that if we're going to move from one paradigm and one way of operating the world towards a world of resilience and sustainability, we need to recognize the anomalies and own it in the system, right? We need to recognize, you know, where those challenges are. And so the research highlights four different archetypal patterns of system anomalies. And it's based on, um, you know, real, um, real data collected from emergency managers around the world and military professionals working in disaster management. The other part of this is understanding that behind every system, there's a mental model. So, so there's a worldview, there's a perspective of how, and then there's, there's an identity and a story. And so a lot of our story in emergency management is at the foundational levels, you know, paramedic, paramilitary, you know, very command and control, you know, that's the history which the profession was born out of. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're amazing at crisis response. We're great at, you know, logistics and tactical operations, but we have a, a, you know, a worldview that is very specific. And if we're shifting our paradigm towards coordination, collaboration, you know, emerging in future risk and building resiliency. And so not just bouncing back, but really building something forward, you need to reimagine well, how are we going to adapt our paradigm? And so that's what the research is about is this is where we are. What's the path forward? And what are those big dimensions of change that need to take place, right? And so the, the last part of my research really gets into change. You know, in order for change to take place, you need to really understand where you are, understand where you want to go, right? A vision and, and then start to take next steps of, you know, and the first step is really expanding our perspective of the world and understanding and start to make different choices, right? Towards the future. So it's a bit of a, a cognitive shift, elevating and thinking in order to allow for a new, a new paradigm to emerge and to do it consciously. Don't wait until we hit a point where we're in a point where the system is collapsing because we've exhausted all of our resources, but wait to do it consciously and intentionally while we still have the opportunity. So in a way, it's a lot about power versus force strategically. You can wait and you can address threats using, you know, force to kind of, you know, manage things. But if you can get ahead of it and look at opportunities for advantage and for investment, then that's a very proactive power stance that you're taking towards the future. And so both need to happen, but you know, you wanna you wanna have it a bit balanced between the perspectives. And I guess the biggest challenge is you're telling people stuff that blows their minds, right? That they have to get out of their current mindset. And so how do you how do you do that? Because people are are you know, cognitive consistency exists for a reason that people are comfortable with the way they look at the world and they tend to reject things that cause them to look at the world differently. And you're constantly asking for people to do that. So is it that you have to find receptive audiences or that 
you know, people are particularly open-minded or is it that you found strategies or techniques that are good for getting people to, to get out of their mindset and look at things differently? It's a really good question. You know, as I've been reflecting on this work uh, for the last few months, and I've had the opportunity to teach a, quite a few different sessions at the Canadian Forces College around design. And I always find it helpful because I reflect on kind of the experience of those. And I think that there's an opportunity for anyone who wants to expand their perspective. There's an opportunity to meet people where they are and help them, you know, along the journey, right? So it could mean understanding the current state a little bit more deeply, mm -hmm. right? And it could be kind of working with uncertainty that exists today in order to really focus on the vulnerabilities. It could also mean about, you know, planning for the short-term future too, right? So that's very practical for a lot of people today, because most of us are very much, you know, rooted to the current future. And if we're looking at the future within a two-year timeframe, that's, that's actually pretty good. So you can actually use the methods to start to shape and expand perspectives today, and then build as people become more comfortable. It's hard to make big cognitive shifts, you know, moving from a very reactive mindset to complete transformation. It, it, there's usually a journey, there's a shift in thinking, there's an appreciation for the insights that each method provides. So that's what I've been really focused on a lot is, you know, before you have a mind shift, right, and a complete mm -hmm. paradigm shift, what are those stepping stones where you're expanding perspectives in different ways, very gently? And so last week, I facilitated an, a really great exercise at the Canadian Forces College called Strat Design. And that's exactly what we did. It was all about shifting perspectives. And so we started very simple first few days of just kind of understanding kind of where we're at with our understanding, you know, our perspective, and then going deeper into systems and really understanding the patterns, understanding, you know, the challenges, understanding the side effects, and then, and then taking that information and then, and then looking at the uncertainties, right? Because a lot of you know, a lot of us don't know how to work with uncertainty mm -hmm. and or we we reject uncertainty, but uncertainty is is um it's very powerful because if you start to um, work with it in a very focused way, it can help you tap into some deeper insights and it allows you to, you know, explore different scenarios, different issues that might present that perhaps would challenge the way you would approach something. So it's, it's really important. So, so that's one thing we did. And then being able to look at it from a future's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And so as we did that over the course of a week, it was incredible because the team at the beginning had a hard time imagining a future they don't know. To the end of the week, putting together a future scenario of a potential collapse of a, you know, of a, a situation that's emerging, but a collapse scenario and actually outlining all of the consequences and then being able to tabletop that and have a strategic conversation about what that means for Canada, what that means for international security, what it means for partnership. And so it was fantastic because it gave them a whole different level of insight into what that world, like what would happen. And so that's the idea is you want to do it in a sequential way where you're really helping, you know, expand and shift perspectives and are building blocks you know, towards, towards ex continuously expanding that, that mindset. And so at this moment in time, dealing with the, the pandemic and exhaustion, but what's next for you? What are you, what are you working on in you for your future? What is Purple Compass's next thing? 
Yeah, so um, a lot of my work right now is um, I do a fair bit of work with Canadian Forces College. I'm mm-hmm. part of a group called the D&D Minds Collaborative. So it, it's, it's fantastic because it's connected to military designers across the world. So I'm also part within that collaborative, the Special Operation Forces Group. So a lot of my focus will be about environmental security and looking at it from, you know, the future of conflict, water, energy, you know, food, all tied to environmental security, what that means, force protection going Mm -hmm. into the future, what I think is really important. So that's one thing. With the Canadian Forces College, I do a lot of work in um, helping to put together different types of learning packages to, to understand and to experience design that really blends well with a lot of the current methods that are being used, right? So that it's a complementary type of tool. And then other projects I'm involved with are really exciting are um, policy think tanks around anticipatory futures, anticipatory Mm -hmm. governance. So what does that mean? How can governments be more anticipatory, understand changes, and how could that affect policy or strategy going into the future? I'm also doing some great work with um, in collaboration with mining companies who are very Mm -hmm. focused on sustainable futures, right? So there's a risk element there. There's an adaptation. There's all about the future there. So, so there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, uh, you know, that is happening right now in the space of risk adaptation, transformation. And so I'm really focused on the role of design in that space to really complement organizations that are committed to, to change. Again, uh, I wish we had the slides from your presentation because you had the best illustrations of your concepts, because what you're talking about, again, it's very abstract. I guess before we go, is there a concrete example of this that you can look back at something that you've you've built together, uh, consulting some sort of situation where there are specific kinds of imaginations about the future and what kinds of specific kinds of policy changes that emanate from understanding that future? I'm in the process of doing that right now. That's, so that's the second part of my research um, mm. where I'm capturing that and I'll be able to create those scenarios mm-hmm. and then to be able to have them publicly available some of my other work that i've done for clients yeah you know i can't proprietary. Yeah, share yeah. that yeah the proprietary they're confidential but they did inform their strategy it informed you know some of the direction right for change you know so that's the thing about futures it's not about predicting the future so it's very different from a forecasting mindset it's more about you know like understanding change and, and understanding that there is an element of uncertainty um, moving into the future and working with it and then elevating the dialogue, you know, and so creating scenarios that allow you to explore different operating environments, challenge your thinking, start to really have, a, you know, a dy- dynamic conversation about the future. And that's where all of these new insights come out. And so you want to have somebody on the sidelines capturing all of these ideas. And so if you're playing and you're, you know, exploring different future scenarios, eventually you're going to see some patterns here, mm-hmm. right? Insights. And so it provides a gateway way for a robust strategy. So yes, so I definitely moving into the future, I want to have more examples that can be shared broadly so that people can experience it for themselves in small ways. Mm-hmm. And because I think you need to experience it in order to understand, right, just the power of some of these design methods to unlock 
insights and new ways of thinking. That's, that's super important. And, and for me, in terms of the illustrations for my research, it's, you know, these are concepts are new for a lot of people, right? And I learned a lot in the last few years, just, you know, studying design and, and then working with colleagues around the world, uh, applying them. But the illustrations are helpful because it takes some of the heavier concepts and it tries to bring them into an image that helps people to understand some of those pieces of information. So I'm actually looking to do perhaps a big map <laughs> that shows kind of the journey visually for people who, mm. you know, perhaps don't have the time to read the whole report, <laughs> but, they can, but they can take the journey through sure. the map and to understand kind of what are those big points, right, within the research that are important. And hopefully, you know, it will allow people to, to reflect on that and to think about what that means for the work that they do, right? And, and I'm sure people will be able to see themselves in, in some archetype or some pattern within the research. And that's the point is to find out what relates, what resonates to the work you do and then finding opportunities to start to expand and to build on to support whatever your objectives are or whatever your the goal of your work um, involves. Excellent. And I recommend people to check out the Purple Compass website because there are projects where there are some illustrations and some explanations of, of what Donna and her team have been up to. Donna, I want to thank you for sharing your time with us today, for being a Capstone Laureate, giving your expertise to that audience as well. We have posted the Capstone talks on our website and they're on YouTube somewhere. We'll have them in the show notes for this episode when this gets posted. So thanks again for your time, Donna. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Steve, for the opportunity to share and to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. For the RR segment, we should have had Stephanie stick around because she and her family saw the same movie I saw last night, which is Shang-Chi. It's a Marvel movie focusing on an Asian American superhero, someone who discovers that he's a superhero, essentially. It's actually a really good Marvel movie. It's not the best Marvel movie, but it's uh, if you like Marvel movies, you'll like this one. It's got the nice blend of action and humor and emotional depth and protagonist is well-developed. He has a, a personal struggle he's going through good mother, bad father, dealing with the ramifications of that, and features some amazing season, scenes in San Francisco, Macau, and elsewhere. And it's really engaging. And it looked really good on a big screen. I think it's a much, very much a big screen movie. So if you can feel safe about going to the movie theater, I recommend seeing it in the theaters. For at home, I have two shows on Disney Plus to recommend. First, only the murders in the building, which is a Steve Martin, Martin Short, Selena Gomez show. It's about three people who live in Manhattan and there's somebody who dies and, they, and it's called a suicide, but the three of them who are avid true crime podcast listeners decide to use this as their opportunity to create their own podcast where they investigate whether this guy was murdered or not. And with Steve Martin and Martin Short, you'd think that they would be the funniest people, but Selena Gomez is actually really funny in this too. And it's a really delightful watch. It's just super fun to watch. And in Canada, we're lucky enough that we can end up Disney Plus, whereas you'd have to subscribe to Apple, I think, in the state. But speaking of Disney Plus, they also have Doug. And Doug is about Doug the dog and his adventures. Doug the dog is the dog that can speak with, well, in the movie, 
Seth Rogen's voice. I'm not sure whether they're using his voice now, but it's about his relationship with his his master, who was played by the recently deceased Ed Asner. And they're both characters. All the characters are from the movie Up, and this is sort of their continued adventures. And it's really nice to hear Ed Asner playing this role again. It was such a sweet role for him. And it's really funny. Uh, the dog, Doug Squirrel, is always engaged in all kinds of adventures. And the first one is indeed about his adventures with a squirrel. So those are my three recommendations for this week. Be well and try to enjoy the things that we can enjoy while these stuff continues to emanate and go on. Be well, thanks. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSNRCDS or email them to CDSN.RCDS at Outlook.com. Thank you.